Beginning in Romans 6, Paul discusses the effect that our salvation has on our life now. This occupies Romans 6, 7, and 8. The word used to refer to the establishing of a right relationship with God is justification. And the word used to refer to the lifelong process of transformation and maturing into the likeness of Jesus Christ is sanctification. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 5, which we have looked at in our study so far, it talks about what God has accomplished for us in the gospel, how we are saved by the gospel, our justification. In Romans chapter 6 through chapter 8, it talks about what God does in us through the gospel, how the gospel changes us or our sanctification. What Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 and 7, which is what we'll be looking at today, it can be confusing in places. He repeats himself, he re-explains himself using different words and expressions and illustrations. He uses the same words in different ways sometimes. The word law, for example, is used three different ways in Romans 6 and 7. Well, rather than getting bogged down into the details of all of that, I want to try to help us capture the big ideas of what he is saying in these chapters. We're going to cover a lot of verses this morning, looking at all of chapters 6 and 7 in one shot. But I think it will help us grasp the main ideas better by doing it that way. So Romans chapter 6 is where we're starting. The gospel... Salvation through Jesus Christ is a received righteousness rather than an earned righteousness. And we have talked a great deal about this over the last number of weeks. Our moral efforts, our good deeds, they don't save us. They don't earn us a place at the table. They don't result in our salvation. Being a good person doesn't save us. This is a radical idea unique to Christianity, and it raises some questions when people Hear that. If our good deeds don't earn our salvation, then why should we try to be good at all? If a person is saved by grace rather than by living a good life, won't that just open the door for unrestrained immoral living? What deters a person from living a sinful life? Well, these are the kinds of things that Paul begins to address in Romans 6. And we begin in verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We're those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So the answer begins with us realizing that we who are believers, Christians, those who have received salvation through Jesus, we have died to sin, he says here. Dying to sin removes sin's control over us, freeing us to live a new life. Living a sinful life is absolutely inconsistent and a contradiction with who we are now. 
He asks the question in verse 2, how can we live in sin any longer? Paul reminds us of what our baptism symbolizes here, that we have been baptized into the death of Jesus. We have been buried with him. We have died with him. And just like Jesus was raised from the dead to new life, we too can now live a new life, he says. This new life is not just a second try at the same life we had before. It's not a do-over. It's a new kind of life. It's a life born of the Spirit of God, as Jesus himself taught in John chapter 3. It's a spiritual life that springs up in us and begins growing. Verse 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We have died with Jesus, so that means that we have been set free from sin. Our old self has been crucified with Jesus. Our sinful nature has been stripped of its controlling power. We are no longer slaves to sin, he tells us here. And then in verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. And the new life he lives, he lives to God. And we are to do the same following his example in the way that we live our life now. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now, Paul's introducing a whole bunch of this theology for us, and we've got to plow through this so that we understand what he's talking about. In verse 12, he continues, and he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. It says, don't let sin reign in your life. Don't let sin rule. Don't let it be the king. Don't let it be the boss. Don't let it be the one that's in control. Rather than offering any part of ourself, any part of ourself as something to be used for unrighteousness, he says, let, let's offer every part of ourself to God to be used for righteousness. Let's live like people who have been brought from death to life. Live like resurrected people. Let us live like Jesus. 14. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Sin is no longer our master. God is. We're, no, we're now under the power and the control of God's grace. Our salvation is by God's grace, and it is under His grace that we now live. Now, verse 15, he says, What then? 
Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And again, he says, by no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Being under grace doesn't free us to live however we want. We have been set free from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer under the mastery of sin. And the freedom that we have from sin enables us, he says, to serve God instead, reflecting His nature and character in our life. A person is a slave to the one they're obeying. If a person is obeying sin, it leads to death. And if a person is obeying the Lord, it leads to righteousness, he tells us here. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We can give praise and thanks to God along with Paul that we who are believers, are no longer slaves to sin. Instead, we obey from our heart the Word of God. As Bob Dylan said in his song, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's human nature for us to serve someone or something. Before we receive salvation through Jesus Christ, we're all slaves to sin. That's the master that every human being serves. But when the Lord rescues us, gives us salvation, we're set free to now serve Him instead. A popular notion that people have is that Christianity is all about imposing a bunch of rules on us. I thought that before I became a Christian. It was one of the big turnoffs for me about religion. I didn't like the idea of God or a bunch of religious windbags telling me how to live my life. I wanted to be free to be me, whatever that was, and to be the captain of my soul. What I discovered, though, is that I had been living as a slave to my passions and other people's ideas and expectations all along, before I became a follower of Jesus Christ, I was never really free. Never. It was a delusion. I was deluding myself, and the masters I served, they deluded me. I discovered when I started following Jesus that the person he wanted me to be was also the person that I wanted to be. I didn't want to be a selfish, insecure, defensive, mean, stingy person. I didn't want to be someone always needing the validation of others to feel okay. I didn't want to struggle all the time with image and identity about who I am and why I'm here and what's the purpose of my life. I didn't want to have to numb myself from the reality of life through alcohol and drugs and risky behavior. I wanted to be generous and kind and courageous. I wanted to be secure and at peace. I wanted to be whole and fulfilled and hopeful. I wanted to have purpose and reason for living. The Lord wasn't 
wanting me to become some kind of self-punishing, legalistic, judgmental weirdo. The Lord wanted to heal me and make me whole. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and one of the reasons that you aren't is fear about what you're going to have to give up and what you are going to have to become, I want to tell you, don't be. You have nothing to fear. And you have everything to gain. Jesus is a really, really, really good master. Verse 19, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Paul contrasts here the two masters we can serve. Before we are saved, before we are born again by the Spirit of God, we offered ourselves as slaves to impurity, to sin and immorality of various kinds, and to ever-increasing wickedness, it tells us in verse 19. Our sinful nature has an insatiable appetite, always wanting more. It is never satisfied. It has hunger that can't be met. It has a thirst that can't be quenched. Before Jesus Christ enters our life and fills us, we are constantly working to find satisfaction to quench that thirst. It's like an itch you can't quite reach. And you keep looking for something that you can get hold of to get at that itch. It's a life marked by frustration. In contrast to the life that we used to live as slaves to sin, now we are to offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness, which leads to holiness and wholeness. When we lived as slaves to sin, we were free from the control of righteousness. But what benefit did we get from this so-called freedom that we had? The truth is, we were doing things we're now ashamed of. Paul reminds us. I mean, looking back at the way I used to live, I wonder, what was I thinking? I can't believe I did that. I'm embarrassed and ashamed of how I acted, of the things that I did and I said, the crazy-making that used to be a regular part of who I was. The ultimate end of living like that is death, physical death and spiritual death. For some of us, it's a wonder that we are alive today. For all of us, we were separated from God, lost, confused, empty, and without a future. And in contrast, now that we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefits are amazing. We're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in character, reflecting the nature of our Heavenly Father and His holiness, and the ultimate end that we now have is eternal life. 
So verse 23, he closes the chapter with this. He says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The paycheck that we receive from living a sin-dominated life is death. Pay to the order of Jeff Miles one death. Signed, sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that our eternal life is a gift God gives us. It's not something that we have to earn. It's a gift. What a wonderful exchange we have been given in Christ. We were once under the tyranny of a master who drove us to do what we are now ashamed of and led us down a path of self-destruction and death. Now we are serving a master who loves us more than we can fathom, leading us in his good ways, We're becoming more and more like Him, and He has promised us a glorious future with Him forever. It's a pretty good trade. It's a pretty good trade. Chapter 7, he continues, and uh, you realize that these chapter breaks and verse breaks are things that Paul didn't put in the letter to begin with. This is something that was added hundreds of years later. So if you go, well, it's kind of weird. You're going right into chapter 7, verse 1. It's like, well, not really. It wasn't there in the original letter, so it's fine. We're just continuing to read the letter. It says, do you not know, brothers and sisters? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while, she, while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, so he says, in a marriage under the Jewish law, A woman was bound to her husband as long as they were both living. But if her husband died, then she was released from the contract of marriage that bound them together and was free to go ahead and marry someone else. The death of the husband nullified the law that had bound the two people together. Paul gives this example to illustrate for us how the death that we have died with Jesus Christ has freed us from the religious and moral law of the Old Testament as the salvation system that we were under before. In verse 4, he explains this. He says, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We've been freed from the old system of the law so that we 
now belong to another, to Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit. Well, is the law bad then? Certainly not, he says, beginning in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the, coven, by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. That probably sounded like a lot of gobbledygook as we read some of that. So let's see if we can walk you through it. Back up at verse 7. He answers this question about uh, whether the law is bad or not, and he says, certainly not. And he begins by saying, the, the law helps us to understand and know what sin is. It describes and defines sin for us. Using Paul's example of coveting, the law names this thing that we are doing, and it calls it out as sin. As we've talked before, although the sinful behavior was always present, the law identified it as sin, and in that way sin increased because it was now counted, identified, and we were held accountable for it because now we knew and we know. There are other aspects to the law that cause us to sin and cause trouble for us, there is a twisted element in our nature that causes us to want to do the thing that is forbidden just because it is forbidden. And you're going, well, not, not, not me. It's like, oh, yeah. We're all like that. We're bent and twisted folk. See, we become skilled at disguising this as we get older, but we can easily observe it in a little child. You tell the little person to not touch the shiny, expensive bauble on the coffee table, and that bauble immediately becomes the only thing that the little person wants to touch. Well, we can respond in the same way to rules. The forbidden thing becomes an attraction to us. What Paul is talking about here is even more pervasive and troublesome than that, though. Here are a couple of ways that is so. The law, it can deceive us into thinking we are making progress toward becoming a better person by following the rules. 
When in fact, pride and self-righteousness and judgmentalism and hypocrisy are growing in us. The law can put us on the awful treadmill of trying to accumulate good deeds to justify ourselves before God and others. An An expectation of us being owed can then start to grow in us, or we become cast down into despair as we find ourselves unable to live up to an impossible standard. Perfectionism and legalism can eat us alive. The trouble, though, is not with the law itself as a definition of good and bad behavior. The law is holy. The commandments are righteous and good. They come from God. The trouble is with sin and our sinful nature and how it twists and uses the law against us to ruin us. As Paul writes here in verses 10 and 11, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death for sin Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Now in the final passage of this chapter, Paul describes for us from a personal perspective how the tug of war between our sinful nature and our new Jesus nature plays out in us. And if you're a Christian, what Paul describes here in these verses, it may read like a page torn right out of your own personal diary. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Does that cycle sound familiar to you, that struggle? Well, if this cycle of conflict between our sinful nature and our new Jesus nature is fought in our own strength and willpower alone, we are going to be very miserable people. We will live in a continually defeated state. Because we will have embraced the morals of Christianity, we won't be able to enjoy being sinful, instead feeling guilty whenever we sin. 
The Christian who has lost sight of who their salvation is dependent upon is a tragic person. The blessings they're supposed to be enjoying as a child of God are being stolen from them. Their tender heart toward the Lord desires to do right and to please Him, but the enemy of our souls beats them to death with guilt and fear every time they fall short. Guilt consumes them because they feel they have failed God and broken their promises to Him again and again and again. They fear they have lost their salvation and God has turned away from them because they continue to go down the same sad track. They don't experience the peace and the joy that's supposed to be theirs. Verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. There may be a conflict raging inside of us as our dead and dying sinful nature continues to fight against the good and growing Jesus nature in us. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We are saved because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done or what we are not doing. We depend on his promises to us, not our promises to him. We depend on his promises to us, not our promises to him. He's already won the war for us. What we're living through now is just the mop-up operation afterward. Sanctification is a process where we are continuing to embrace and live in the reality of who we are in Christ more and more. We've died to sin and the old salvation system of the law. We're no longer slaves to sin, which leads to death. We're now slaves to God, which leads to righteousness, holiness, and eternal life. We've been raised to a new kind of life in Jesus, free to live and to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Our incentive for living a godly life has changed from fear and trying to justify ourselves by accumulating points on the good side of the scale. Now we live a life that is free to obey without all of the weight of that. We live a life motivated by gratitude and love for the one who has rescued us and given us this new life. So I close with 1 John 3, 2 as a reminder for us. John writes, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. This is a promise. We will be like him. 
We depend on his promises to us, not our promises to him. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for what you have given us. You have given us a new life. You have set us free from the bondage of sin. You have given us yourself as a new master to live for. And what a wonderful master you are. I pray that you would encourage your people this morning, especially those who feel defeated, that you've already won, Lord. The war is over. We're just in the mop-up operation now. Remind them of whose they are. Remind us all that we are going home because you've made that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.